So, Michelle. So, David. Exciting day today. <laughs> I don't know. Is it? Because I've seen it what is. you're wearing. I'm not that excited. Look, I'm really sorry, but I've blown a meniscus and it's really important that I keep my legs loose, which is why I'm wearing cargo I know. He shorts. literally has boomer dad vibes. I'm so glad that this is just an audio yeah, situation. Yeah, well, let's be perfectly honest. I am nothing but a boomer dad. We have a guest. Oh, my God. I'm. Th- this is so good because I don't have to just talk to you. I mean, you look fabulous. You're in your sartorial. I just did TV, so, you know. And I just slap in looking like a dad. <laughs> yes. And we've got a big special guest. A big special guest. And it's a really special guest. Okay. Um, because we've talked about Ukraine and Russia quite a lot, but this time we've got somebody that's actually been there. Really? Yeah. Well, that's exciting. Yeah, I'm really thrilled with this. I'm, oh, can you tell I'm excited? Can you just calm down? My shorts are puffing up. Stop it. You're listening to I Spy, the embedded journalist of Australian intelligence. I'm looking for the president. Okay. Uh, well, a friend of the president. Uh, okay. Just, just don't tell any spies that I'm looking for the president. Uh, okay. And you are? I'm an Australian. Okay. I'm a journalist. Okay. Truly. Okay. Hello and welcome to I Spy. My name is Michelle Stevenson. I'm here with David Callan and we do have a very special guest and I'm very excited to welcome Misha, who has a podcast himself called Diplo Mates. Misha Zelensky. Zelensky, let me get it correct, because Zelensky is the name of the president. Zelensky is the name <laughs> of the journalist and Fulbright scholar. Did you know that? Oh, no, I didn't. There you go. He's smarter than us. I mean, it's not difficult to be smarter than you, but anyway. <laughs> well, welcome, Michelle. We're so happy to have you here. Great pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me on, and uh, thank you for that very generous introduction. I'm not sure I'm smarter than anybody in this room, but uh, <laughs> perhaps, trust perhaps better dressed, but you know, that's uh, we'll leave that to the public to decide. Definitely yeah. better dressed. I'm Definitely. Take a photo of these shorts and post them in, on, on our Twitter feed at I Spy Podcast, and if you don't like them, well, suck out. No, I think we need to do a poll on our Twitter, on our Twitter feed to see who actually actually likes them and no one will. So we're going to do that as well. Before we go any further, do you remember the old thing you used to get when you got on a train called MX, that free newspaper? Oh, yes. yes. And they used to have that thing about people seen on the train. Yep. Right. And there was one and it was my students that showed it to me. They went, you've made MX. I went, what are you talking about? Went, look on the seen on the train column. And it had the guy down at Circular Quay wearing the three quarter length camo pants. You ruined my day. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. And so you kept them and you bring them out on special occasions. I'm so honoured. You must be honoured, Misha. Oh, look, it's a great thrill uh, to see the white pointers out on display, mate. So. <laughs> well, um, there's sun. We haven't seen it in so long and nor are my legs. Misha. Yes. How long has it been since you've been back from the Ukraine? Uh, just under three weeks. Three, oh, oh, my God. Three yeah. weeks. Yeah. All right. Now I'm sharp. Fresh off the boat. Indeed. Yeah. yeah. What? Uh, uh, you have a Ukrainian background? Uh, Russian-Ukrainian family. Russian-Ukrainian yeah. family, but Australian-based, obviously. Yeah, yeah so okay. uh, post-World War II migrants. Yeah. yeah, okay. So when did you decide, uh, there's a war going on, I've got to go and stand in the middle of it? Uh, well, I was there before the war started. Oh. So I flew into Ukraine, or went to Kiev, uh, when flights were still going on the 16th of February. Yeah. Yeah, so I was there a few days before the hostilities broke out, covered the war for the first two and a half months for the Fin, uh, the Australian Financial Review, and then went back uh, for a month in September, October. So clearly you've been over there covering it. What has struck you most about the war and particularly the people as well? Well, I think the bravery and resilience of the Ukrainian people surprised mm. everybody. So it's mm. easy to forget these things as we've gone along, but you go back to the beginning of the war, most people gave Ukrainians 24 hours to I hold out. I roll of the dice would give you the number of days. Well, indeed, right? So, you know, the fact that when you're sitting in Kiev and the expectation from everyone was the city would fall in 24 hours or yeah. 72 hours or yeah. the president would be arrested yeah, or killed uh, yeah. in the first 24, 36 hours, which the Russians did attempt. So they, they're still here, right? So mm. we're 250-odd days of the war, and uh, they aren't just still here. They haven't just 
I guess, withstood the attack. They are now winning the war on the ground. So they're repelling it. Well, indeed, right? So, and they're beating, you know, one of what we believe to be one of the world's superpowers militarily and perhaps the world's second most powerful military. Ukraine was a relative minnow. And so it's yeah. an extraordinary effort when you consider the, you know, the size and scale of the Russian forces, what they were up against. So the odds that they've been up against, so their ability to withstand that is extraordinary. And their, their bravery and their dignity um, in the worst of circumstances mm. is uh, you know, really inspiring. When you say that you were all sitting in cafes in Kiev going, my God, we're going to be gone in 24 hours, mm. can you actually put your finger on a point where you felt that the morale change within all the stoicism just sort of kick in with the Ukrainian people? Was it something Zelensky did? Was yep. it just something like a, a communal moment where they went, no, nah, we're not going to take this? Well, I think it's a combination of factors. When I got there uh, before the war started, it was very odd. So you're reading about this sense of there's 200,000 Russian troops arrayed on the north, uh, east and south of the country. Inside the country couldn't have been more sort of, I guess, uh, yeah, contrasted against that concern from outside. Yeah. So. Yeah, Zelensky, you remember going back to it, was saying, please stop saying the Russians are going to invade, you're revving this thing up. Mm. And so there was this sense of, I don't know whether or not it was willful blindness or a, a sense of not wanting to rev the tensions up any further, but it was very muted inside mm. the country. And and also kind of like, you know, when I was talking to my friends who are Ukraine and saying, do you think there's going to be invasion? Oh, Misha, you, know, you guys are the crazy Westerners, it's not going to happen. Right? <laughs> you know, and so look, you know, we're hoping for the best perhaps. Mm. And, uh, you know, then of course, uh, Putin invaded, and the first 24 hours was a sense of shock that it was actually yeah. happening. And, and it's important to remember that I think part of the reason why Ukrainians were perhaps lulled in a false sense of security is that Putin essentially had been at war with them for at least eight years. Yes. Some would say centuries when you look at what's happened between Russia and Ukraine. Mm. But in terms of hostilities, there'd been conflict in the eastern part of Ukraine by so-called Russian separatists. But the Russian little green to, man. Yeah, correct. Yeah. In Donbass for eight years and the annexation in 2014, you know, the illegal annexation of Crimea. So that was the context. I think two things happened. One is Zelensky didn't leave. Yeah. And you can't quite put a price on that, but I often think about, look, if Winston Churchill left London in mm. World War II during the Blitz, would the That would have been Brits- a very different result. Well, indeed, right? You can't quite put your finger on leadership in those moments, but Zelensky, he was being urged by everyone, including the Americans, saying, look, get out, go set up a government in exile, perhaps in Lviv or in Poland. Mm. He said, I don't need a ride, I need ammunition. <laughs> Which, to me, <laughs> legendary quote, right? Yeah. But you've got to give it to the guy. Well, we've said this a number of times. Right. Don't think you can bluff a comedian. It's their job to stand in front of people <laughs> and go, I'm smarter than you, I'm funnier than right. you. Right. Shut up and listen to me because what right. I'm going to say is more important than anything you can think of or funnier than anything you can think of. I think there's certainly that amount of chutzpah right. in in Zelensky, in that he went, no, I'm not walking away. Well, right, and so he's taking videos of himself in the middle of Kiev saying, we're, we're, we're staying, I'm fighting, and, you know, come get me sort of thing. And I yep. think that Ukrainians, when I speak to others that mm. wondered what might happen, they themselves weren't sure whether or not they'd give in to the bully as they have many, many times mm. throughout the centuries of their history or that they'd finally draw a line in the sand and stand and fight. And I think the president staying gives a lot of confidence. You, you contrast that against, not the same thing, but if you contrast that against what happened in Afghanistan, mm. their president yeah. bailed out and the country disintegrated in a week. Yeah. And you think to yourself, well, if the president leaves, he knows everything that's going on. If he's got no confidence that we can hang on here, then why would anybody else stay exactly. and fight in Afghanistan? Different situation, perhaps you know, not the same sense of nationhood and, and identity, but nevertheless, most recent compare and contrast events. So Zelensky staying was a powerful thing. And the other thing, Going back to what we're saying about expectations, the 24-hour thing. So Ukraine's like, 24 hours, we're still here. Yeah. Yeah. 48 hours, we're still here. A week, we're still here. And so actually, as the Russians started to labour, were unable to take Kiev and and, and take big parts of the country, that confidence continued to grow throughout. And so 
they drew confidence out of those low expectations. Uh, and basically, they were sitting there going, I reckon we can make a week. Well, right. Two yeah. weeks. Let's well, go right. for two. Right. Yeah. And, then, and then they won the, the battle for Kiev was a definitive moment where the yeah. Russians then had to concede that they couldn't take Kiev and regroup into the east and, you know, the war's gone on from there. But that was the moment, I think, you know, Zelensky and the fact that the expectation was so low and their, their bravery was extraordinary in those opening exchanges where essentially Ukraine was by itself. Now, the West was... Uh, you know, saying things like, oh, how dare you, Putin? But the, you know, the weapons weren't flowing, the no. sanctions weren't put in place. It was Ukrainian bravery that turned the whole thing around. And it's quite shameful, really, when you think about it, that NATO allies, Australia, not NATO ally, but Western allies, mm. sort of sat back and watched to see whether or not the Ukrainians could hang on. And once they did, well, oh, well, maybe we can send them yeah. some weapons or we can sanction Russia and all these things. It, it took Ukrainian bravery literally on the outskirts of their capital to hold on. But I do think in some ways it is quite a complex situation because Mm. if NATO allies jump in too quickly, you know, we almost want to avoid this fallout with Russia and that's kind of where we've sat. Now, how has that buoyed the Ukrainians in having that help and having that support? And also, was there a moment where they they really did feel isolated? Mm. So I think, uh, I mean... Ukrainians know they can't win without Western support. Mm. They can't do it without weapons. They can't do it without Western money. So they Don't know give that. me a lift, give me bullets. Well, right. And so they're prepared to fight and die for their country and their freedom, but they know that they can't do it without steady supply. So that's in many ways what Putin's trying to do whilst he's trying to win the war on the ground. He's also trying to break Western will to continue to supply Ukraine. Mm. But uh, at the beginning of the war, there was very much a sense of, you know, I wrote about this quite a bit, you know, is NATO coming to help us? And in those opening days, whilst they were fighting, there was a sense looking to uh, you know, European and, and the United States and others saying, well, are you coming? Now, of course, that was not going to happen for reasons that you've said in terms of West not wanting to get into a direct war with mm. Russia and, and essentially triggering World War Three. But that shifted to, okay, well, are you going to put a no-fly zone in place? This was a term, close the skies, because yeah. at the time the Russians had complete aerial superiority. And we talk about what's happened even today with the bombings Missiles being sent um, into Kiev and other parts of the country. Again, uh, it's, it's awful what we're seeing. But there was that ask. And again, when you break down what a no-fly zone is, essentially it's asking American jets to shoot down Russian jets. And again, you're into you know, you're back into World, World War III. III. So again, that was not really possible. So where they ended up settling on was, look, just give us a bloody weapons and we'll do this ourselves. Yeah. And so that now is the very clear ask, is they want more weapons mm. and they need them a, a greater supply faster. In many ways, you look at it, you know, we've gotten better and that we are giving them more things and, and you're seeing the results on the ground, particularly with things like HIMARS, which really changed the yeah, battle. Yeah, that know, changed we, the game. Uh, hugely. But the capability is still far stronger on the Western side. It hasn't really been given everything that they could be given. And yep. There's a frustration amongst Ukrainians that say, well, listen, look, you know, we are not asking you to do anything other than give us weaponry, defensive and offensive weaponry. And they say, well, why does it always take something bad to happen mm. for you to then t- send us, if it's HIMARS or if it's uh, uh, anti-aircraft or anti-missile technology? Bushmasters. So, Bushmasters, all the things that are yeah. needed. Australia's the most popular brand now in Ukraine, would you believe it? Bushmaster. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> there is a frustration. Yeah, there is, yeah, that's right. There is a frustration yeah. around the slowness, you know, that – and not often you'll see words don't necessarily match actions, particularly countries like Germany where mm. they promise certain things and then you know, the feet drag. So yeah. there's a degree of appreciation for that support but frustration around the scope, scale and speed. Can yeah. we get more? Right. Yeah, and I look, I think what we're doing is right and I do think we probably could you know, make that flow a little bit easier in some regards. But in some respects, we've seen America particularly – jump into these wars, and they've never turned out well. 
not for the rest of the world. You know, we've seen, you know, they've taken people out, they've put people in. And I think it's a really fine line. And in some ways we we have to almost let it kind of play out. Well, one of the interesting points you made there is America jumps into a war, which is true, they do. And I mean, when people say, how can, how dare Russia invade Ukraine? Well, how dare America invade Iraq? All right. They're two sides of the same coin. Mm. But the interesting thing is because of the NATO affiliation, America is kind of locked in. They are. So the, the great example, was the missile that landed in Poland. Now, some people said it was a Ukrainian missile that landed in Poland. Other people are saying it could be a Russian missile in Poland. Was it Russian? Well, there is, there, there's talk about that, which is basically they're using the wrong kind of missile. They're using an anti-air missile as a ground right. missile, so it's inaccurate. And it was close to a target within Ukraine. But the interesting point that was made was the fact that the Russians said that NATO want to have a war with us and we're going to stop it by not letting them into Ukraine. Now, if NATO wanted a war with Russia right now would be the time to start one. Right. And they had the perfect excuse with a, a missile landing in a NATO nation. It's doctrine not to go to war with Russia. That's NATO's doctrine. It's like we whatever happens, don't go to war with Russia because they got a, they got more nukes than anybody else. But I almost think we don't need to go to war with Russia because no. what we're seeing right now is the fall of you know, Putin, like yeah. he he has proved that he is not as strong as everyone thought he was and he's trying, he's doing his best to save face and he's not saving face. The Ukrainians are gaining ground mm-hmm. in the battleground and that has to be messing with him. He would be fucking furious. <laughs> it, well, it's undoubtedly terrible what you've seen on the ground there for Putin. He's been completely humiliated. If you look at whatever mm. his objectives were, if it was stopping the expansion of NATO, well, NATO's expanded through Just Finland and Sweden, right? Yeah. yeah. It was unthinkable for them to join. Now I'm a unionist, right? So it's unsurprising if you sit there and scratch your head and say, well, what's the countries that Putin won't invade? Well, they're NATO countries. Yep. We should probably join NATO, That's right? Strong. Strength in numbers. <laughs> yeah. So NATO has expanded a very long time it's now expanded right the west has never been more unified he was having a lot of success at pulling you know strings or yeah, you know, on the out. threads of uh of western unity and you know people say well we've probably got to trade with russia on energy etc now you're seeing the the complete banning of these things in terms of diplomacy trade etc so it's destroyed his economy it's destroyed his prestige and the thing that's most important to him is looking strong and his military has been completely humiliated mm. in terms of your oh, point yeah. about whether or not they'd be a war with uh, now you don't want to ever see a war but right now he's flat out trying to invade ukraine you couldn't imagine that he'd have any realistic expectation of invading europe yeah uh so yeah we should draw confidence from that but in terms of what the west should be doing at this point i think in many ways what got us into this point is really not well indulging bad behavior yeah i agree bad behavior has been indulged from putin for 20 years be it Mm. meddling in elections meddling in brexit meddling in united states elections extraterritorial killings uh, he's been in the united kingdom right right the illegal annexation 2014 so he thought to himself why why wouldn't i try this on we've just seen the the western allies the united states withdraw from afghanistan he thought to himself you know nato's a paper tiger yeah and so putin's not a great strategist a lot of people say oh, he's playing 3d chess and we're playing checkers i actually don't think he's like that at all he's actually a gambler yeah i would say that and a gambling man doesn't always win he goes all in and he waits for the west to fall he's trying to bluff he's right. trying to bluff everyone and he always tries to up the stakes yeah what nuclear threats are about all these things are about essentially hoping that you know we will all blink and give in so, you know, I, I actually think you can break this down in one of two ways. On the one hand, you can say this is just a conflict between two countries very far away from Australia, mm. certainly very far away from you know, not every European nation, yeah. but certainly yeah. located in one part of the world. But you actually look at it a little more deeply. Australia's a country of 25 million people. We're a democracy. We need mm. our friends. There are countries around the world that mean us harm and they don't like democracies such as ours. And so 
if a democracy like Ukraine is prepared to stand and fight against a big autocratic bully and have success, I think we should invest in that success and help them get that success as quick as possible. Yes. Because a grinding long fight in Ukraine is in probably is in no one's interest. And, yep. you know, over a long period of time, the Russians can probably just force their sheer weight of numbers onto the Ukrainians. So I think whilst Ukraine has you know, it's tail up uh, and they are winning mm. on the ground, I think we should help that along. Yeah, well, I mean, we're seeing it as well, the way it affects us through inflation and energy right. prices. It's um, definitely hitting a lot of the Western countries hard. Yeah. Now, how important has social media been in this campaign? We've spoken about this a lot and it kind of is what I think has been getting at Vladimir Putin because, right. you know, before he, he had control of all media and yeah. now everything is kind of getting through and then, you know, Ukrainians, Elon Musk kind of provided Starlink as well, so gave them a few more capabilities. How important has the social media presence been? Extremely. I think probably one of the most underreported or least understood mm. or underappreciated elements of the war. It's like the first smartphone war. Yeah. yeah. And so you've had this live stream of data, or, you know, visual data coming out of you know, the war zone in a way that yep. previously we never would have gotten. But also I think what's quite interesting is you've got this compare and contrast between the two leaders, you know, Zelensky and Putin. Zelensky's an entertainer, going back yeah, to your he's point. He's so good at He that. understands you know, entertainment mediums. He understands how to inform and use all the tools at his disposal. So he's in many ways like an avatar of his people and his mm. country. And also his generation. And his generation, that's as, right. As so, a, he's a, new, he's a modern right. leader. He's a new modern leader. Yeah. That's right. And so Putin, on the other hand, has been the master of misinformation using the traditional system. So they've got the you know, Russia Today and yeah. they get, they're very good at manipulating traditional media yeah. and they're very yeah. good at understanding the links between traditional media and social media. But what they're not good at through that top-down approach is getting user-generated content. Mm. And so coming back to that point I was making about the Ukrainians not really wanting to get into this scrap at the beginning with Russia, once that happened, the explosion of Ukrainian identity online and yeah. you've got 45 million advocates that are following their president and creating this surge yeah. of content. And so the unbelievable way that there's this ecosystem of individuals, you know, 45 million Ukrainians and, and those around the world in the diaspora selling this message, but also how quick they are yeah. uh, centrally as well. Their government, you know, government can move very slowly. Oh, glacially. Right. But I know the guys that uh, run some of these accounts, like a Defense of Ukraine, which mm. is a huge Twitter account, and they just troll the Russians all the time. Yeah. You know, that was just one example. They were like, hey, Crimea, what's going on? See you soon, right? And, they're, they're, <laughs> and they've got Crimea tweeting back saying, oh, it's been a bit lonely down here or something yeah. to that effect. And so... Drinks. Right, right. That type of stuff. And it's engaging. Yeah. And so it's a way to sell this message of, you know, why does this stuff matter and why should we care about Ukraine? So they've got to keep people actively interested because yeah. there's so much happening in the world yeah. that things can drop down the order of priority over time. So that's... One of the challenges, but I think social media is critical and one of the least understood yeah. parts. Yeah, and I think the immediacy as well. Like I'm, I'm an avid Twitter user, but the immediacy of like seeing images come right. from the ground. You know, when there was big shelling one day, you saw like a young girl who was holding her phone, right. and yeah. like you saw yeah. literally just miss her, and she's bloodied and stuff like that. I think images like that are what kind of solidify. It's 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 basically how the Vietnam War was kind of well, lost right. in terms yeah. of a mindset. We've gone from the, uh, here are the boys storming the beaches in Normandy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. To journalists that just give them free reign. And but even everyday the, people well, having right. the, yeah. being able to on TikTok right. and, you know, all of that. The, yeah, stuff. and that's the evolution of it is, you know, we had the journalists, that incredible shot of the guy being killed in the street, shot mm. in the head by the Vietnamese army. There's that image. And then we went to embedding journalists right. in Iraq, the first and second Iraq wars. And now it's like 
we're all carrying studios that's in our right. pockets. So suddenly we're not only shooting yeah. stuff, we're producing. And that's and why. And getting it out like distributing. Uh, that's right, exactly. And, and that effect, what I've been saying, we've had this perverse situation with you know, social media and its impact on the truth. Mm. And the Russians have really leaned into that over yeah. the last 10 years in terms of, you know, they, they don't care about creating any sort of facts. They just want to create 100 different truths. Yeah. And once you do that, then anything could be possible. They and cre- then you become create cynic. dissent. And cynicism. Yeah. Because yep. you say, well, I yeah. don't know. Maybe nothing's true. Everything's true. I don't know, right? Well, I mean, they were the ones, we spoke about this recently, but they're the ones who, you know, created this dissent and this idea of like questioning government through during COVID. Do you know what I mean? Right. Like because they had a lot of troll accounts on Twitter 100%. and Facebook. So they're the masters of that. But what yep. you've had with the situation with, you know, 45 million Ukrainians with phones in their pockets showing what's happening on the ground. Mm. Facts have made a kind of a comeback yep. uh, in the war and, you know, Putin can spin it all he wants, but the brutality of what you're seeing on the ground where there's missile strikes in a city and immediately you see the consequences mm. and, and people can show literally right there and then what's happening. I was able to do that myself. And, uh, you know, you see, you know, horrific images and, yeah. and these war crimes and that's what they are coming yeah. in live real time. You know, the Vietnam stuff was incredibly powerful but it was slower, right? Mm. So yeah. this is happening in real time. So. The Ukrainians are masterful at moving at the speed that the mediums move at yep. and they're wrong-footing the Russians. And the first time for in a long time the Russian misinformation machine has been outplayed. It's a kind of interesting thing. Yeah, and I think one of the turning points for me when I was following this was when they'd captured a couple of Russian soldiers and they gave them a cup of tea and they offered them to use their phones to call their parents right. yeah. and watching them cry. And these Russians were telling them, we didn't know where we were going, we didn't know what we were doing. And it was that moment of humanity that you saw and I think that really played well into the Ukrainian mindset. Like, we, we are humane. We're not going right. to do the things that the Russian forces are doing. Mm. Have you spoken to many Russians who have been captured or Russian soldiers and what is the feeling for them? Well, I mean, look, it's it's a difficult thing because right now it's a pretty clear line between what's happening between mm. Ukraine and Russia and which is the, you know, the good side and the bad side, really. Yeah. We really haven't had this clear a good and evil conflict in our lifetime, certainly, really yeah. since World War II, probably when you break it down. So my contact with Russians is minimal because, mm. unsurprisingly, I'm a big critic of the regime and I'm, they're not <laughs> yeah. going to be wanting to talk to me. I'm sanctioned by Putin, right? Oh, really? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm on the list with 128 uh, other Aussies. But welcome. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm not yeah. on that list. No. Well, <laughs> oh, yeah, so we keep waiting. It's wait. dishonoured. Well, maybe now I've been on here, you guys should get at it. But uh, <laughs> yeah. you hang out with my dishonourable self. But, yeah. uh, look, I think, you know, when you look at uh, – any country, I, I had on my podcast a woman by the name of uh, Evgenia Karamutsa. Now, mm. she's the wife of a uh, Russian, dissident, one, yes. right, Russian yeah, yeah. dissident politician. And he was brave enough to go back there when the war started, knowing full well that he'd be arrested for critiquing the war or the, you know, the so-called special operation, which you get 15 years. So there are, obviously, it's a big country with diverse views. But right now, you've got a regime there that's completely corrupted, redundant, yeah. disgraceful, yeah. And, and, you know, and creating war crimes. So, look, I think... The difficulty in Russia right now is if you are a dissenter, it's basically impossible to dissent. And uh, otherwise, you know, you've got to support the regime, which is what the majority are doing. But yeah. you but you see, like, those images of when he did the conscription and Russian men trying to flee the country, right. literally. And I would imagine that, for me, the perception is it's not always so cut and dry because right. there's a lot of Russians 
who don't want this man in and don't know how to fight or how to stand up because they've never had to before. And I would imagine it would, it would be a really interesting dichotomy of like, you know, hate Russia, but there's also these people that we're fighting who don't want to be here either. Oh, look, there's an extreme human cost on both sides. Mm. And look, to be a dissenter in Russia is basically asking either for a death sentence yeah. or a life sentence, right? So it is very difficult to do it. And Putin is completely crushed dissent, political dissent. Mm. And there were protests at the beginning of the war and all those people essentially got rounded up and, and thrown into jail. There's no independent media really to speak of mm. and there's no political opposition to speak of. So the consequences for speaking out are very, very high and Russia's has hard to do. So you did see people fleeing the country, though if I was a sceptic, I'd say they, they didn't flee the country until they were called up to fight. Yeah, right. Yeah. So I they were happy saying. to see other people fight for <laughs> yes. them. Or, you know, and the Russians... As well, when you look at their conscription model, they tend to conscript ethnic minorities to go fight. Their oh, fight really? Their, yeah. Well, yeah. There was a lot of footage coming out of places like uh, Kazakhstan or not right. those sort Stanny of regions. Areas, the, yeah. the more eastern yeah. regions, they were just like basically mm. pulling trucks up, getting guys in, and right. driving them away. Yeah. So oh. Putin is very reluctant to call up his supporter base in Saint Petersburg and Moscow. He doesn't like to uh, mobilize ethnic Russians. Though he had no choice on this occasion. With there was a three hundred thousand yeah. call up, but broadly speaking. Russians are quite happy when others are fighting and dying for them you know, in the name of Mother Russia. But yeah. it was interesting yeah, yeah, that yeah. they didn't flee at the beginning. They fled once. Yeah, it no, it's, of, a, it's a very valid point. Hmm. Absolutely. So you got to have some degree of scepticism yeah. about that. But at the same time, of course, there are plenty of Russian dissidents inside Russia and around the world that uh, would love to see Vladimir Putin go. And, yeah, we've got to hope that they are able to, you know, in the end one day they will be free and they will be democratic, but just a question of when and how. There's also the problem that you have is if at some point Putin is brought down, what replaces him? Well, yes. That void is a really scary well, void. Well, that is a good question to talk about because the biggest critics of Putin right now, to your point, are mm-hmm. not the dissidents saying we want peace. It's actually people to his right saying he's not going hard enough. Yeah. yeah. That he's not you know, you know, brutalising Ukrainians even further, which is extraordinary to think about, but not using nuclear weapons. And so that is scary because he's unleashed this Russian nationalism and this hawkishness and the belief that if you truly believe that Russia is facing an existential threat from the West and at the moment the war's going badly, then, and you truly believe that. Double down. Well, right. And so, yeah, Putin's maybe more cynical than that. I don't know. We don't know what's in his mind. Is he, does he truly believe his own propaganda? But that is to his right. There there is that risk of Mm. worse people coming after Putin. And then, you know, even you take a guy like Navalny, you know, he's perhaps the you know, the great hope of the side, but he's a Russian nationalist himself. He yes. believes that he supports the Crimea annexation. Now, he's against the war right now. Yeah. But, you know, the, he's a nationalist. What he is is an anti-corruption nationalist. Yeah, but, that, you know. It, that doesn't really play well in well, the right now. Well, right. But, but it's interesting. There is this stream, like, you know, the Russians, whilst like, any country is a dictatorship, still has politics, right? Yeah. And so... The stream in Russia of this nationalist streak is no probably more potent, but exists in the same way it exists in the United States or in Australia or other Western countries, right? So guys like Navalny are very much still playing to that audience. They're not um, – we shouldn't dream that there's a you know, JFK coming through. That's there's gonna, no great white hope. Well, no. perhaps not. <laughs> they're there, but, you know, they, they've been marginalised. Guys like Nemtsov were killed. So, yeah. you know, that West, you know, Western liberal-style democracy movement doesn't exist inside Russia right now well, in any meaningful sense. It doesn't really exist in a lot of places, and every time we've <laughs> yeah, seen... that's true. Every time we've seen Americans try to fix it, it's ended up being worse. But mm. that's also a really interesting point that's always made, is we, we have a tendency to go, well, why aren't they just like us? Why right. can't they be 
democratic like us? Why mm. can't they be a liberal democracy, mm. you know, and be good and nice and pure? And mm. that's just not the way. Well, I, mean, I mean, look at America at the moment. I mean, what kind of democracy are they living in? Yeah, well, you know, you know sometimes <laughs> even train wrecks have got to have a time sometimes. <laughs> but I think. Yeah. Well, this is Winston Churchill, right? It's, it's the yeah. worst system apart from every other system. Yeah. I mean, I'd rather live in, I mean, the United the States. The best of the worst choice. Well, indeed. Yeah. The United yeah. States has. Plenty of problems, right? Oh, and we can yes. go there and, like, you know, I can hand ring all day about you, the state of the United States democracy. But democracy. We'll have you on for another episode. <laughs> yeah. We'll just call it the hand. We ring. need five hours. <laughs> but, Let's just do a series. But, yeah, you know, yeah. the, the good thing about democracy is that it's self correcting. Yes. And so when you saw the United States make a mistake, in my opinion, and we touched on it around the Iraq War, mm. yeah. you got Barack Obama elected and, you know, slowly unstitching those wars. You got Trump, then you got Biden. These things can be corrected. The United, Russia is had Putin for 20 years yeah. marinating in his own paranoia yeah. and his own grievances and everyone has to say good job boss right yeah and you know ultimately there's a thousand people in Russia that, that run Russia 999 know the war's going terribly yep. except one bloke who they can't tell yep. right otherwise you get thrown out of a window or quite you, literally yeah, you're going to do the same thing as every other oil well, executive right. well right. yeah well right exactly so the fact of the matter is that Just lack don't of walk past windows yeah. that's right exactly right Stay but there's on no the ground floor there's no self-corrective mechanism and no. i think that's the important thing there's no feedback loop for leaders yeah and that's why putin in many ways invaded because he believed his own height yeah or, I, it, or if I, you're England, there's too much feedback. I, yeah, well. <laughs> Your well, letters. Who's well, the it's, this it is an interesting point, though. When you look at Truss, she's yeah. come up with this crazy pl- and She got mugged by uh, – look, I'm a, a Labor man, as people would know, but yeah. it's ironic to see the Tories getting mugged by the capital markets. But nevertheless, <laughs> yeah. I uh, – the it, capital markets will mug anyone. Well, right, but it is self-correcting. She's yeah. come up with a policy that's unsustainable. It's gone in 45 days. Yeah. Now – had she been yes. the head of Russia, probably doubles down on that for twenty years. Yeah. So it is an interesting yeah, example. Absolutely. No, I think I think you're. I mean, the instability right. is not good, but it is no. an interesting kind. Of, if you kind of compare and contrast the way that those systems can squeeze out bad leaders and bad ideas faster. Um, well, I mean, look at how many leaders we went through in a eight year period. Oh, well, <laughs> we went you know, quite a few. <laughs> it was good. You know, we went shopping. Yeah, a window shopping. Yeah. Let's try that guy. No, let's try that guy. No, I don't like that one. Yeah. Unfortunately, the voters didn't get to decide yeah. enough of those. No, but, exactly. Uh, yeah. that's I think that's part of the problem. Point is, I think uh, that I mean, if you put it in the Australian context, we watched what happened in the last sort of decade. We, we vote for a party, not a leader. Yeah, we vote for a party, not a leader. So there was a lot of that. He's not my prime minister stuff. But mm. you know, understand your political system. But a lot of people don't with Russia the political system. You don't vote for him, but you still get him. Well, you, I think one hundred and ten percent of voters exactly. supported Vladimir Putin in the last election. <laughs> yeah, right? I know. So, uh, their their yeah. polling is always out weirdly. You're like, I. That doesn't even make sense. Oh, look, I mean, look, the thing about Russian polling where they say, and people go, oh, 85% yeah. of Russians support the invasion. Well, two things. One, I mean, if you believe the numbers, you're going to be kidding yourself. But <laughs> yeah. secondly, if someone rang you and said, do you support this invasion? You didn't. You'd be very brave to say no because you'd be getting a knock on the door shortly yeah. thereafter yeah, saying, yeah, right exactly. this way, sir, right? So, uh, you know, look, the Russian numbers are ridiculous. You saw that even with these sham referenda where mm, allegedly exactly. 98% of Ukrainians voted to join Russia and then couple hours later, Ukrainians are pulling down the Russian flags and putting up the Ukrainian flags. I know, so you it clearly couldn't not. even militarily control areas <laughs> no. next, which is the kind of bungling yeah. nature of the Russians right now. So and there's poor Vlad sitting in his office going, but they all want me. Well, indeed. <laughs> so being on the ground, what was it like visually? Mm. I, I would imagine like it would be such a visceral experience in terms of what's happened to the landscape. Yeah, it really is heartbreaking, especially the further you get south and east. Mm. I just yeah. travelled right around uh, the southeast of the country Country, went down to like Mikolaev and Dnipro, went out to Bakhmut. Some of these mm. places have been literally 
destroyed with flame. beyond recognition. Mm. You know, Zelensky describes them as a dead cities, mm. and they are just rubble. But even major cities, it's quite normal. You'd be walking along, and there's a you know out of nowhere a building with a huge missile hole in it, or mm. yeah, rubble. The Ukrainians are very good at repairing things. Yes. So there was that big missile attack that I was there. I think it was October 11. From memory, I might have yeah. that wrong, but like 40 missiles dropped. Yeah, in. yeah, right in a Kiev. It was 80 across the country, but most yeah. of them went in a Kiev, and uh, they'd patched up the roads and got everything moving again within like 48 hours. Yeah. So it was quite extraordinary the efforts, at the way that they are reconstructing on the move. But unfortunately. You can smash things faster than you can rebuild mm. them, and that's sort of what Putin's doing. And that's a big regrettable thing here. And it's, I've said this right since the beginning of the war, where it looked like it was pretty clear Putin wasn't going to win from. I thought about day five, but he can destroy. He just Ukraine. wants to destroy it. He can destroy Ukraine while losing. And He's so like, if I said, can't have it, no one right. can. Right. So these are I describe them as the equivalent of a military temper yep. tantrum. Yep. So he suffers a massive reversal. He loses Kherson, which is a huge humiliation. Yeah. Yep. It's a major city, the only one that he's really captured. And then the next day he fires, you know, 80 missiles into the heart of Ukraine to destroy mm. their uh, energy infrastructure. Now, it doesn't change the facts on the ground. The facts on the ground remain that Ukraine's winning. Yeah. But it makes Ukraine it makes a mess. worse yep. in the sense that, you know, it makes their lives worse and it makes their country more destroyed. So it's horrific. Yeah. It sounds like Putin really didn't get smacked enough when he was a little kid. <laughs> Throw stuff out of the pram and mum didn't lean in and smack him. She uh, just picked the toys up and give them. I don't know, mate. You've seen those photos of him shirtless, riding horses. Oh, it's a pretty butch sort it's of like, thing. Put it away, put it away. It's so gross. I used to do a great <laughs> joke in my, my one-man show about Asia. I used to do a great joke. It was just Vladimir Putin doing the old Spice ad. <laughs> yeah, look at me. Don't look at Ukraine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's almost yeah. as bad as looking at David in those shorts. Yeah. Thank you. Um, oh, my goodness. Yeah. Uh, look, I could talk to you all day. We'd love to have you back sometime. Most definitely. I'd yeah. love you to come back. Let's talk America. Yeah. Oh, oh, one question. Um, I was there last year. I was there for uh, doing my Fulbright scholarship there. So it's uh, it's. Uh, See, I yeah. told you he was a Fulbright scholar. Well, I got that in there as well. Someone, I had someone down read on Wikipedia. The- I did Sorry. my research. I didn't read Wikipedia. I went to his Twitter page. Yeah. But, yeah, it's, Wikipedia's too long. No one's I know. Got yeah, it's what, 140 characters. <laughs> I know. Yeah, yeah. just Wikipedia TLDR. Yeah, yeah. One question, because this is about spies, this podcast isn't about spies. Did you see any sort of instances of intelligence, sort of anything either Russian or Ukrainian, or any whiffs of intelligence operations that were going on around you inside this theatre of war? Well, I think one of the things you had to be careful about as a journalist is that you weren't being manipulated by yeah. both sides of oh, the information right. yep. space. Yep. Yep. So yep. the speed of things coming through and being able to verify them was challenging. So you had to have trusted sources and people that you could verify things mm. with independently. Like, yeah. is this legit? Is that video real? Is that? Yeah. And, and people did get caught in those sorts of, inf- you know, in those information uh, the warfare. Traps. Oh, indeed, right? Because the Ukrainians, they've got their own agenda. Yeah. And, you know, I'm extremely sympathetic to what's happening there. But at the same time, they're trying to you know, rally the world and, you, you know, they're cognizant of what journalists are up to. But I think uh, you've seen penetration of journalists. So mm. right now it's very difficult. Well, someone has had penetration journalists like Russian spies mm. yeah, yeah, coming that, from what Italy. Thinking. I was like, <laughs> I, I just, my eyes glazed over. Right. It's been a while. Dream anyway. No, but the, Ita- Ita- <laughs> the Italian, uh, there was an Italian journalist who turned out to be a Russian spy. So yeah. it's very yeah. hard now to get credited as See, a that's the problem there. is journalism, you know, journalists have been used, uh, well, the cover of journalism. We're the perfect cover. Right. Yeah. And I, yeah, I, I, nearly got arrest, I nearly got arrested a number of times uh, by really? the SBU, which is their, uh, uh, I guess their their internal, yeah, yeah, Asia, their Asia, Asia equivalent. And what so if they've got a comedian working for them. Oh, they do. It's the <laughs> and, then, and then did you did you start talking an Australian accent? <laughs> well, it's funny, right? Because like I can speak Russian, I can't speak Ukrainian, so I'd start off in Russian, and you know, sometimes they wouldn't enjoy that. So I'd oh. speak English, and they'd be like, "Well, I can't we can't speak uh, English?" So like, well. My Ukrainian's worse than your English and Russian, so what do you want to do? But <laughs> yeah. a lot of the time they'd quite they'd work it out. It's a funny story. When I was uh, 
went to Krivirig, which is Zelensky's hometown. I was mm. doing a profile in his hometown. I read that one. Yeah, yeah. it's just above Crimea. It's a like a steel town. It reminded me in many ways of Wollongong, where I grew up. Yeah, the Gong. Yeah, and so it's so like any other steel town. It has that kind of same mindset. It's yeah. a tough town, a little bit declinist, you know, rust yeah. belt kind of I grew of up city. around in Newcastle. Area. Right, okay, so, so you same. understand. Yeah. Same oh, sort of I'm vibe. a Gong boy. Yeah, and so they um, – I said, look, I had my, my fixer rang the local government mm. said, look, we'd like to speak to anybody who grew up with Zelensky who knew him, right? So this somehow got lost in translation that there's some <laughs> foreigner looking for Zelensky. <laughs> so up turned the, uh, the SPU, the, you know, the ASIO guys, and they say, who's looking for the president? Of course, everyone just turns around and points straight at me, that bloke right there. G'day. And I'm like, oh, man, all right. So they're like, all right, come with us. So they started looking at my phone and then, they went through and eventually they worked it out. Like mm. they, they, they looked at my stuff and you know, looked at my photos and make sure I didn't have anything that was contraband. And then uh, they said, well, we assume you must be an idiot because anyone that come here looking for Zelensky, everyone knows he's in Kiev, but we thought we'd come check it out anyway, right? So, <laughs> uh, but, uh, but otherwise they are very active out there making sure oh, yeah. that uh, – mm. because at the beginning particularly there were assassination squads and, yeah. you know, flipped Ukrainians being hired to kill the president. And so – they are very, very anxious about yep. spies and also open source intelligence. So that's they really ask, had a huge resurgence. Right. And they ask journalists a lot of the time don't post videos of things that are happening live because that gives Russians tips yeah. because yeah. they're watching yeah, when there's a missile strike. So there's a tension between, you know, I would see a missile land, there's an explosion, you get footage of it. Do you show that? Or yeah. by posting that to the world, are you letting the Russians know, geez, we didn't hit it, we yeah. hit it? We, you know, and yeah, so there's another one. Well, yeah. there is a tension there. And th- so the Ukrainian government did uh, slap some journalists around for, for posting things that were uh, essentially, you know, classified. Yeah, switch mm-hmm. off your geopositioning, please. Yeah. I mean, it, that was the great story about the Chechen squad that came in, the assassination squad right. that came in mm. and took photos of themselves crossing into Ukraine gang, we're going to get you without switching off the geopositioning on the shots. I will say like the Ukrainians went, yeah, this uh, artillery barrage over yeah. there, please. Well, some of yeah, the amateur hour nature yeah. of Russia's entire military operation has just been extraordinary. Yeah. From the bottom to the top, it's just been so amateurish. And I think in many ways, one of the big questions we had going to this war was, look, can a military superpower be sustained by economic middle power? And an unsophisticated one of that, essentially gas and oil economy, yeah. they just they can't because mm. they don't have all the things that go around an army. They don't have all the technicians and all the people that you expect in a modern – like Australia, yeah. economy is about the same size, but ours is much more sophisticated than the people that we have here, whereas theirs are essentially people living off – the pro- they're almost like Saudi Arabia living off the process yeah, of that's, oil and yeah, gas. Exactly. Yeah. And so the economy is very unsophisticated. It's and, yeah. and it's shown that it's unable to provide all the scaffold that you put around yeah. a, a military. It's beyond tanks and planes. Yeah. You actually need all the, the people and technicians, et cetera, to support all that. It's and almost like it looked good on paper, right. but then in real life everyone went, oh, wait. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that, that, yeah. That, the other thing that's really gone badly, like badly for the Russians, is the mm. fact that the Ukrainians, and because of the Ukrainians now, NATO and the West have – got access to their CNCs, yeah. their missile guidance. You know, they've got they've literally got the paint off some of the SUs that they go, well, if that's the radar deflecting paint, mm. let's just point a radar at it and keep firing at it till we get a signal and then we know how to find their planes. Right. So they they literally had everything they own as being reverse engineered. Yep. And we know how it works. So this great military bear has actually turned out to be a bit of a teddy. Yeah, that's right, and uh, and and getting worse because yeah. they're running out of their good kit, uh, and that's where the sanctions will really bite them on mm. their supply yeah. chains. Everyone's focused on the financial ones, and rightly so. But their inability to, you know, they 
you get these reports that they're pulling apart fridges to get chips out get of them. Get chips out, yeah. And so, and anecdotally, you know, I've spoken to people on the field of battle who've told me they're shooting down drones and there's like Coke bottles in them and all sorts of weird things that they're using to essentially <laughs> kind of retrofit <laughs> yeah, these. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're just running out of kit. And so that will wear down uh, the Russian capability in the in the short and medium term as well. So that's why that resupply effort of, of yeah. Ukraine is, is vital. Yeah. And, and, and maintaining that support politically for it will yep. be a challenge through winter. And I think that's where the war is going to have a big political phase over the next three months yeah. where it's going to be relatively quiet in terms of the action on the field. There'll still be fighting, but perhaps not to the degree that we've seen because it gets harder in the war. Yeah, it's in, bloody cold. Yeah, and snowy, yeah. right? It's good to move tanks, but it's not really good to move people. Yeah. But you're going to have Ukra- – sorry, not Ukrainians. They're going to be freezing, obviously, but Europeans are going to be very cold and paying mm. a lot for oil, oil and gas. And it's not hard to imagine a situation – I wrote about this where – Western support starts to fray before the Italian election. Before they elected Maloney, who's a you know a right winger, mm-hmm. far right, fascist, na- a na- uh, well, a nationalist. <laughs> it depends on how you want to call it. That's a terrible sneeze. You <laughs> I know. <laughs> but nevertheless, four in ten Italians support lifting sanctions on Russia yeah. and, and lowering mm. their power prices. That was before the war. But, uh, I mean, sorry, before winter. But long seeing, before winter. We saw that in America too. Totally. Like it was in the midterms, that was like right. their primary response was, you know, we don't want to pay a lot for petrol because right. people unfortunately can't see beyond right. the scope of their it's own hard. living. Yeah, well, people are very complicated. Like You can yeah. say to someone, do you support the war in Ukraine? Yes, I do. Do you support lower gas prices? Yes, yes I, I do. do. And so <laughs> like, the cognitive dissonance is, yeah. is some of the works in politics can be very, very yeah. frustrating yeah. Uh, to deal with that. But... Uh, no, the two things that kill any government are gas and groceries. Yeah. And those are going up. Yeah. And uh, Everywhere. That would, right. And so that is where uh, I think if I was Ukrainian or a big supporter of the effort to support Ukraine mm. is watching what happens to Western governments in Europe over the next yeah. six months can be yeah. challenging. You know? Yeah. Look, we have to hold it there. But like you were incredible. It was so good. We ne- I could chat all day. So we'll, <laughs> dev- too, we'll definitely. We'll I definitely could talk think. for Australia. No, it's yeah, great. So, yeah. No, it's great. It's great. I mean, that's what podcasts are about. Yeah, right, right. Talking. <laughs> you, you found the perfect medium for that's yourself. Right. So did uh, I. That's why. And, yeah. I know. I can never shut him up. So right. it was great. I found someone who could shut him up. It's perfect. <laughs> Thanks so much for being no, here. No, no. Thank you so, for having me on. Misha Diplomates. Yeah. Check and, it out. Yep. Fin Review. Yep. And Fin Review. Yep. And of course, you're on Twitter. I am beautiful. Yep. Great. Twitter oh. and Instagram. If you if you no longer like Elon Musk, you can come. Uh, you know, go. <laughs> uh, I'm on Instagram. But Elon, it's just Musk, Elon Musk is kind of funny to me. So anyway. Well, I mean, look, I can't stand him, but it is a good example. <laughs> look, there's there's some joy in watching an, an idiot blow up forty billion dollars. Oh, no, it's great. Right? It's great. Um, it's actually hilarious. I mean, yeah. he, we all know he overpaid. He paid forty four billion, and it was worth twelve. So yeah. you know how to make a million dollars? Yeah. <laughs> by tech company. Richard yeah. Branson said, become a billionaire and start a uh, yeah, start an airline. Elon Musk forty four million. Yeah. Well, Eli, I will Sorry, say yeah. Elon Musk did tweet recently, yeah. how do you make a small fortune from a social media company? Start with a big one. Yeah. Right. Um, so I think he's he's across his idiocy. Thanks for coming. Cheers. Thank you very Thank much, you very much for having me. It was great. Appreciate it.